The first thing is to sit down and actually say, well, how are you going to define growth? What's most important to you? Because growing the headcount doesn't pay the bills. Hello and welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase. On today's show, I'm talking with Gavin Symes, or Gav for short, who's a friend and a mentor of mine. Um, he has been instrumental in helping us to 10x our business, more than 10x our business over the last couple of years. So he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to business and growth. And the reason for that is he started in business quite young with his dad and has grown a quite a significant business over like the last 20 years. So he's kind of seen the entire trajectory of the different phases of growth for entrepreneurs, walked the walk, made the mistakes, done all of the stuff, and now he's giving back to other entrepreneurs as well. So in today's episode, it was really valuable. We dug into load of different stuff. Of course, we learn a little bit more about Gavin, his story, but we talk about different levels of scale, when to think about taking money off the table, how to think contrarian in a way to get better returns. Where does M&A fit into a strategy of growth? What are some of the best ways to grow a business? How to think about traffic and opportunity? So there's a lot in there. And if you're a business owner and you're wanting to look ahead and think, okay, what are the next kind of things that I need to be thinking about? When should I be thinking about this kind of stuff? How should I think about developing a team? What are some of the systems that I need to have in place? Then this is a fantastic episode for you. Now, if you're watching this, I really encourage you to hit the subscribe button so that you get every episode as it comes out. I really appreciate it. And of course, make sure you share this with somebody else as well, because it helps to spread the show. All I really want to do is create a show that delivers a tremendous amount of value to help people to build better businesses, build wealth outside of business and live a lifestyle by design. That is what the show is all about and how I want to give back. So that is the entire point. There's no sales pitch in this show, none of that kind of stuff. So all I ask of you is if you found this valuable, make sure you subscribe to the channel and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase podcast. Joining me on today's show is Gav Symes. Gav is the co-founder, co-founder Gav, did I get that right? Co-founder of Money, which is basically a big fine... Big finance type conglomerate of different brands and companies in the kind of finance and financial wellness space. Uh, he's also a coach, mentor, guide, all kinds of stuff, and has personally um, been a friend and mentor of uh, myself over the last few years. Gav, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm super keen um, to be here, and thanks for having me on the show. No worries at all. Okay, cool. So I want to talk about a lot of stuff today. You've had a pretty interesting entrepreneurial journey, and whilst I don't want this episode to be Gav's life story. I do think it is relevant <laughs> to kind of start there and go and trying to get some context around like what your entrepreneurial journey has looked like to date. How have you gotten to where you are? What is it you're kind of doing in a nutshell? Because then I want to dig into some of the lessons you've learned and some of those kind of like positions of scale and stuff like that. So why don't you kind of give us a little bit of a background? Yeah, the cliff notes. We could talk about this for hours, but as you said, yeah, I think let's just get straight into it. In terms of like full background, when I started when I was first exposed to business life, um, my dad had a manufacturing business in Perth, WA, and um, that didn't go very well. And so when I was super young, that impacted financially on my family. And so we were didn't have two cents to rub together. There were situations where we had the electricity cut off. I remember being in the McDonald's drive through and we didn't have enough money to pay for the meals that we ordered. So in the drive-through, we had to fling the car doors open and scrounge around under the seats to try and find fair change, uh, spare change, for you know to pay for lunch or dinner or whatever. And so that gave me real inspiration to say, well, there's two things that I can learn from this. Uh, the first one is that if you're in business and you you're playing with fire and you go too close to the flame and you get burnt, well, there's real bad implications of that. And then the second one is, well, 
surely there's other people that are going through this in life, in their business, and also personally having financial troubles as well, where their electricity is getting cut off and they've got debt up there, up to their eyeballs. How can I use this personal learning experience for me to help those two uh, sets of people? So I honestly believe I've been put on this earth and everything that I've been through and all of the shit that I've eaten through life, I've been put on this earth to do that and to help other people to avoid that in the future. So that's sort of where where everything started. And then I've had multiple businesses sort of spin off the back of that um, as a result of it. So yeah, happy to go into as much yeah, or as cool. little let's detail go, let, as you go, want. Let's go, let's go. Let's go a little bit deeper because that was that was the kind of genesis of it. And then um, you and your dad ended up starting a uh, a business that was designed to help people, you know, get through um, those yeah. kind of kind of crunch scenarios. That evolved. You've now got a pretty sizable business. I mean, what can you tell us about that? It's help to, helpful to understand. Like, great to know where you were. Yeah, around awesome. in the Macca's drive-through. That's a good. It's a good starting point. <laughs> where are you at now? And that kind of gives us the context, and then and then we can kind of then start to segment that and get some of the lessons out of it. So now, as you alluded to at the start, I'm co-founder of a business called Money, and we've got various different brands and services. The goal is to help people manage their money better, get out of debt and increase their credit score so that they can get access to the best possible interest at the best uh, possible rates. Once you've got those three things sorted, then we talk about how do we build wealth for the future so that you can you know, reach your financial goals. So now as a subset of that, we've, got, uh, we've grown that from you know, myself, my dad and my brother who was in the business at the time, we've grown that to over 100 staff. We've helped over 600,000 people. We've done hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of revenue and turnover. So super, super proud of that. And that business is still going after 20 years. And now all of that stuff that I've learned in building that business is super valuable that I found to other people. And so in my spare time, I mentor various businesses and just show them, hey, here's the problems that I had. Here's how I solved it. Maybe give that a try and see what happens. And most of the time it it ends up getting the same result. Okay. So let's talk about that then. So you've got a decent business now. You've, you know, done bucket loads of revenue, you've got a ton of employees, you've helped a lot of people, wonderful, that's great. Was it a was it a nice, easy, straight path from like, oh, I know what we're going to no. I know what we're going to do. Let's create a business that's going to help people financially. And it was a nice, easy path. You came up with an idea and just walked casually strolled into the future to arrive at where you are today. Or was that was that how it played out or was there any kind of like any any no, more depth not really. <laughs> Look, I think if I said the answer was yes, that no one would believe it anyway. But when we when we actually started the business, we couldn't afford to pay anywhere to rent for an office. So there was a basically a five foot high gap underneath my father's house. And so that was our office. So we painted the walls and put some carpet down. And uh, we didn't actually set out to say, hey, let's scale this thing to the moon. It was just something to give me something to do after I finished high school, but also you know, get him to plot around and do something as well and, and genuinely help people. And then in the first, I think it was in the first two or three months, we were already overrun with the amount of leads that were coming in, with the amount of people that we needed to help. And so I remember sitting there looking at my dad and saying, what are we going to do now? Like, it's either we keep, we put a lid on this thing and we keep it low and it's just us, or we open the floodgates and scale it to the moon. And so we decided that we were going to scale it and it took off from there. But, you know, every single challenge that every single business owner has, I've been through and I've seen that where we got to a stage where I 
cash flow was so tight because we were growing so fast and I wasn't looking at the numbers, you know, we had to put our own money in to pay wages or smash the credit card through the credit card machine so that we had money in the bank to go and, you know, pay bills. So it's a really challenging thing. And the people that we've employed over the years, I've employed some really bad people, but the people that I've got now and the team that I've got now are pushing through and getting us through that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of challenge that's been associated with all of that growth. Yeah, that's super interesting. I have recently started doing a practice where I write down each morning what I'm grateful for, like a little gratitude, like three things that I'm grateful for. You know, it's yeah. really interesting because I'm not typically someone who spends a lot of time reflecting. I look forward, not backward type thing. And so it's an interesting exercise for me to kind of go through that process. Something that comes up every single, literally every single day when I'm like, I okay, go, well, Jesus, what am I grateful for today? It's a little bit, I'm going to do a it's not, it doesn't come naturally to me. But then when I actually think about it, the thing that comes up consistently every day is the team, the team, the team that we've got around us and the team that we've built. And, and it's so interesting as well, because I was talking to uh, somebody else recently and they were asking about like, oh, so what have you achieved recently? And I couldn't think of anything because I think of achievement as being personal, where in actuality, everything that we're doing in, a, in our business is a result of our team effort and everything like that. And so I can't, I don't, most of the can't take credit of it. So it's interesting that you, that you mentioned the team. I, I'd love to dig into that, but I want to ask something first. You said that when you were in the like the little bit under the house in the five foot roof and the painted walls, you were suddenly overrun by leads. Most businesses would love to be overrun by leads. What were you doing at that point in time to generate uh, too many leads? What what was the specific action that you were taking to generate leads at that point in time? Okay, so this is going to show my age a little bit. And so when when we first started, there was no Google. Google did not exist, and so we used to run um, a an ad, you know, very small ad in the newspaper. And I remember we didn't run it on Wednesdays because Wednesdays was the most expensive day to run ads. And one week, it was in the classified section, and one week the the paper, I think it was the Telegraph or something like that, they accidentally put our ad in the adult section of the paper. And we got a Stack of calls. So rather in the classifieds, it's in the what adult kind of section. Calls? So you've what got kind of calls were they? Were they like, were they, yeah, you know, people seeking? Not heavy breathing or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, no. So <laughs> nothing like that. That was part of the clincher, which was, well, we've got, that was confirmation. We've got the right messaging. We've just got to get in front of the right people. So you could imagine, yeah. and I, I think I've got a clipping of it somewhere where you've got a half naked lady there in the newspaper then you've got our ad about helping you get out of debt and then below that another half naked lady so it must have stuck out like anything Um, but that was that was a turning point as well and so since then we always put ads in that section of the newspaper (laughs) and then the second one was (laughs) the second one was we got on um we got on google really really early and it wasn't such like a distraction or bright, shiny objects or anything. But uh, one of my friends at the time was running a furniture business and he was getting some results from Google. And he came out and he said, look, I'll, I'll show you sort of how to use it and how it all works. And so we were one of the early adopters of Google search advertising. And from that point on, it was so cheap to get leads back then. I'm talking like we were paying five or 10 cents a click back then. And that's unheard of now. So that sort of took the next level. And then at the end of it, we get a whole bunch of referrals from word of mouth. So 
the more people that you help, they tell other people. So we're really big on customer satisfaction and, and over emphasizing on that and over pleasing the client because once you do that, you'll get a good name for yourself and then that just brings in more business. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, just bit, on the Yeah, that's the sort of uh, the turning point. Yeah, that's um that's super interesting because I was listening to a uh, podcast with Grant Cardone the other day and he was saying because he's just like yeah. interested in like where where can we get cheap traffic? And uh, he realized that he could get cheap cheap traffic on porn sites. So he started uh, he started literally advertising on on porn sites. Like like, do you know what you could be doing right now instead of <laughs> you know instead, instead of, of that <laughs> instead of instead of this? You know you could be making money or whatever like, the yeah. thing is. And I'm like, uh, so, and he reckons that. And he started like the uh, I think he's got like a millionaire's uh, like millionaire booklet, like how to become a millionaire or whatever, like a little like front end low ticket offer that's kind of like the top of funnel offer so he started sending them into the into like on advertising on porn sites it's like you know stop doing this and you could get and apparently just went gangbusters like they just sell so many of the books that come from those yeah. sites so it's an interesting it's an yeah. interesting traffic arbitrage opportunity that that's for sure so what's the like, well, what's the yeah, biggest dating sites and all of that stuff go crazy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's interesting because i think i think people underestimate the value of eyeballs as well like i, I think and looking at those yeah Trying to find trying to find the kind of traffic arbitrage opportunities because a lot of people say things like, Oh, yeah, sure, you can get a lot of organic reach on on TikTok, but oh, you know, they're like our our customers or our clients aren't on there. It's like if you get ten million eyeballs versus a thousand eyeballs, guess what? Some of them are gonna be the right people. And in fact, the people that aren't the right people now can become the right people later. And it's just a, a huge opportunity to to be thinking about. It's good to be like focused as well, but Yeah, definitely. But even like in this day and age with the data and the tracking that you can get from marketing sources and channels, it'll tell you really quickly whether it's working or not and whether yeah. it's the right people. And that's, you know, one of the things that I see, I've got a, whole, a huge network of multi, a huge business owners from, you know, nothing up to billions of dollars in revenue that yeah. they're doing. And one of the big mistakes that they make, that everybody makes, is make jumping to conclusions with off their back of their own assumptions. Yeah. And so TikTok's a really big thing. So back when TikTok started, what was it? 13-year-olds doing dances. Now pretty much everyone's got a TikTok account that's in any decent demographic. And so you could have easily just, you know, canned the channel, but now you've got to you've got to be on there otherwise you're not relevant anymore. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And there's always going to continue to be opportunities like that because Facebook kind of dropped off. There was a lot more advertiser competition. The CPMs went up, like a lot of like the, the ad performance went down. Organic reach died on Facebook quite a long time ago. Organic reach on Facebook, Facebook's been starting to pick back up again. And I'm seeing like advertising costs drop again because I think people, as they've shifted away from it now, now you sort of like, there's a bit of a swing back there is because it's still pretty sticky as a platform. So um, I think it's good to just... Yeah, I think you've got to kind of like continue to test and measure and just let go of your assumptions and, and just test and measure and shouldn't try and find the, the right pathway. What's been the biggest failure that you've had in your on your entrepreneurial journey? Like what's the what's the one big one that sticks out? Oh, okay. So I don't know if there's necessarily one big one, but I'll, I'll cover a couple of, of them. Yeah. I remember one day I got a call from the bank and so we had an overdraft. I think it was about 200K. At one point when I was watching the bank account all the time, I can't remember how much money we had in the bank, but it was plenty. And we burnt through $1.6 million in like four months or five months or something like that. But I didn't even realize because I wasn't watching it closely enough. And I remember I got a call from the bank saying, 
the overdrafts 200k i remember them saying calling me and saying hey your overdraft is at its limit do you want us to up it by another 100k and i w- was completely in shock because i'm out for lunch with my wife at the time and i had no idea that any of this was happening obviously in that situation you have to dig yourself out of that shit to get through to the other side because i don't know about you fight or flight comes into the equation all the time but giving up is never ever ever an option for me so i dug deep and got back and got out of that situation and from that point i vowed never to go back again and so that was probably just a big failure where just a lack of focus discipline looking at the numbers and staying on top of those really really burnt me what caused what caused you to get into that situation like you said you were looking at the numbers and everything was good and then you just what you just decided one day i don't need to care about the numbers anymore fuck it i'm just gonna go what what happened and my mantra now is by the time a problem hits the bank account it's too late so i was looking at the bank account figures um and then stopped doing that but i wasn't looking at anything else so i had no idea how many sales we were making each week how many leads we were getting in any of that sort of stuff how much money we were collecting in cash because it was sort of tracked but not really tracked and then i wasn't looking at it so it's just sitting in a file or a sheet somewhere for me to look at and i think that was probably the biggest issue with it but you know if you do a bit of root cause analysis and you go down the brief to the team and also myself was let's just go and take market share and own the entire world at any cost you know they call talk about blitz scaling and all of that sort of thing i was paying uh, 70 to 80 percent of the lifetime value of a customer to acquire a customer now yeah. in australia you've got 10 percent gst so that takes 10 percent off the top line and then you've got no other margin to operate yeah yeah interesting yeah because it's like kind of okay potentially if you've got a um, software business or something where there's like very minor incremental cost of delivery as you scale but if you've got people involved full stop if there's if there's people involved in the delivery mechanism of the thing that you're doing it's like well those those numbers don't work if you blitz scaling one thing that you want to know is what's your runway and how many weeks or days or months do you have until you run out of cash and if you're not even looking at that well you're going to get call a call from the bank so i think that's i wouldn't say that's my biggest mistake but certainly a mistake yeah, yeah, fair enough. Were you tracking, yeah, so they were you were tracking KPIs before that? Like you, or you just stopped looking at like, did you refine your process? Like, so they were there. That's yeah. a, Someone was yeah. sitting there manually saying, okay, we made 10 sales today and typing them into a spreadsheet. But I wasn't looking at it. Oh, okay. That's a big lesson. And you've got to look at the numbers. <laughs> well, that's the first thing. And then once you look at them, then you've actually got to do something about them. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's certainly a big lesson for me. And that's why, you know, We've spoken about it, but also everybody that I speak to, I'm just like, you just got to be on top of the numbers all the time because if you've got sales that are down for three months, by the time that problem hits the bank account, it's too late. I would actually go one step further. I had a really interesting moment in uh, one of our leadership team uh, meetings uh, this week. Uh, in our leadership team meeting, we go through all the KPIs. We've got all of our you know, departmental heads and all that kind of stuff. We go through all the KPIs of all of the departments. Everyone's looking at the numbers together and... What is interesting is that our leadership team has started to really take a lot more ownership over the business and it's, it's really awesome. And again, I'm super grateful for the team. It's such an amazing experience to have great people around you. But what I loved is there was a specific metric uh, in one of the departments, which was, we'll call it suboptimal, like like significantly sub- suboptimal. Now, 
me personally, I was like, yeah, okay, cool. That's interesting. And then was kind of going to move beyond it. I was like, okay, clocked it, move on. I was sort of, if I'm honest, sort of going through the motions a little bit. But it was the other, it was the leadership team members who said, whoa, 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 stop. We need to ask. And then we spent 25 minutes digging into the specific problem. They did, not me. They did. They were empowered to take ownership over it to outside of their department. They were like, hang on a second. What's this? Can we help? How's this? Let's dissect it. What's it? How is that communication happening? And so all of the leadership team went and solved the problem of another department. And so for the entrepreneur who's thinking about scale, you know, there's obviously different levels to scale and growth. And at a certain point, you're going to be the person wearing the hat and doing literally everything. You're going to be sales and operations and finance and client success, and you're going to be everything. And then you start to build a team, but then you actually need the team to actually be the people who have the ownership over the business. And when that happens, like, yeah, you're still going to be across the numbers, but that is another transition point where it's not just, I need to look at the numbers every day, but actually empowering and building the culture such that the team are going to hold the business accountable and you accountable, I think is a really big step for business owners as well. What do you think about that? Yeah, 100%. And if you've got the right team that questioning each other, don't, aren't offended by, you know, being questioned, aren't are taking that personally and want to work together to get the outcome, then I think that's the perfect, perfect, perfect um, result for any business owner. The goal is, is, and the challenge that I've found is when that happens, actually stepping back and giving the team space to allow them to have that conversation instead of jumping in and saying, don't worry about it or here's the, you know, I'm the know-it-all, this is, this is what the solution is. Yeah, they need I, to go in, through that process. It's totally. Yeah, and I, I, I thought it was awesome. I was like, okay, this is my chance to shut up and just watch. It was brilliant. It was so good. <laughs> it was, it was, it was freaking awesome. Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about different levels of growth because you've obviously grown a business, um, multiple businesses. You've got different wealth and finance and all kinds of stuff in there. So there's a little lot of light things to pick about there. In your experience, yeah, or from your perspective, what do you think is the fastest way to grow a business? Well, the first thing is to define how do you measure growth so leading going back to the example that i gave before of running out of money how we measured growth was the number of staff that we were putting on and also uh the number of that the amount of revenue that we were increasing by now both of those things if that's how you measure growth amazing that's great but at the end of the day that's not going to pay neither of those things are going to pay the bills because what I learned was if you've got a $10 million business that's doing 10% margin and you're pulling in a million bucks a year, that's to me, that's better than having a $100 million business doing 100 k in profit a year. So that's the, that would be the first thing is to sit down and actually say, well, how are you going to define growth? What's most important to you? Because growing the head count doesn't pay the bills. No, that's true. And so with that in mind... All right, let, let's kind of let's let's dance around this question a little bit because it's an interesting one, right? How would you if if someone wanted to build a fast growing like a lot of people, they're like, all right, I want to build something big. I want to build something big and awesome, and I'm you know I want to help a lot of people, and I want to make a lot of money, and I want to do that kind of stuff. And there's probably a few components that that actually come into how would you actually make that happen. One of those is like selecting the right business model, for example, like because you can if you're in the wrong vehicle, then you're just going to go slower, like on the track, and so. You may not have the margin capability to grow as fast. If you're solving a similar problem, if you let's say you're solving a you know finance issue, right? Let's say you, the widget that you, that you've got it solves finance, 
some kind of finance problem. On one version, you have like a software as a service type delivery mechanism. There's like loads of upsides and downsides to that. High cost, you know, like they're typically, but then also once they get going, they can be really high margin. You could have a pure service-based business, which is typically um, higher uh, revenue, but you may not have the operating margin to scale as quickly as you might like. And so thinking about that, right, if you can kind of like architect the, the, more, the most optimal way to think about growth and scale, whether it be through business model through, you know, and then thinking about what the applicability is, is it like pick SaaS and then go direct to consumer and just use Google AdWords? Or is it like M&A is the fastest way to growth, but in fact, you probably need to have this type of business model. Like, how do you think, I know it's a very open-ended question, but it's an interesting thing to consider when, to take people out of the mode of like, what business do I have? And then it's actually, well, what, what is the architecture of what it could be? Yeah. So if you start with, let's assume that we've got product to market fit right? That whatever you're doing in the marketplace or whatever product you're offering or service that you're offering actually solves a problem. Now, the bigger the problem that you solve, the more you'll get paid to be able to do that. So, let's just assume that we've tested that, we've measured that, and we've got that right. As you're growing, when when you're the best way I found to grow is to do that organically. And I don't mean, you know, organic traffic channels. What I mean is, is that you start with the one thing in one market. So let's just say you're selling an accounting SaaS product. Focus on that one product in one market. Then if your product is applicable or your service is applicable to other markets, other countries, use that same product in another market and continue until you've exhausted all of the markets. Now, why you why I suggest and why I've done the same thing is one market, one product, same product, different market. Why I suggest that you do that is the ability to deliver and scale that product is much, much simpler than having one market and 17 different products. So yeah. once you start hitting caps on that, then you can say, well, I've gone to every English speaking country and it's not translatable into other, say, countries or languages. Now it's, okay, second product, but the original first market, and then doing that thing and scaling that way. Now, when you break that back down to the business owner and what they're doing, I find generally business owners fall into three categories. The first one is they've got a whole bunch of time and they don't have any money because they're either starting or, you know, they just don't have customers or they've over, they've put on too many employees. The second one is, They've got money, but they don't have time because they're the glue and they're running around wearing 17 different hats. And the final one, which is where everyone should be aspiring to, is they've got plenty of money and plenty of time because their scale and their team and their processes are actually running the business and they don't necessarily have to. So in terms of you know going from start to finish, I would say one product, one market, and then start with sales and marketing in that to maximize yourself and then move forward to putting people on and then scaling the hell out of that. What's more important, sales or marketing, if you just have to pick one? If you don't have leads, it's hard to sell. Now, I'm a bit biased here because in my business, we've got a really in-demand product and it's really easy to get leads for us and we're really good at that. So marketing without sales is nothing. And sales without marketing is also difficult. So if you're in a marketplace or if you've got a product where you can use sales, uh, a team to go out to people cold and and do that, then great. 
But I think marketing's got to come first. You close the sales and then start getting somebody else um, who's solely responsible for closing sales that you're generating from a marketing perspective. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, yeah, I would argue that you can have marketing without sales, but you can have sales without marketing well, too. Let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about it, right? Because, like, if you think if you think about it, marketing is 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 basically sales on steroids, right? It's sales it's sales on mass, right? In a in a in a context, right? Depending on what the style of marketing is, it is still driving people to make a decision to want to engage with you as an organization. Now, you could have a like a product led kind of um, acquisition strategy where you can literally they can go to your website, sign up on the website, pay you, and then the next thing they do is they speak to like a customer success um, type person and they're in, they're inside, you know, and there is no, there is no sales. Uh, now there is a selling process in there, the transaction kind of event and that, that kind of stuff. Inside from like a, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Inside the marketing context, there is a sales, uh, there is a sales event or activity, but you don't actually necessarily need to have a sales team. Now you could have a sales team and have no marketing and literally just buy lists and get people to hit the phones. And just cold call people. And that would work. But if I had to choose between those two extremes, like one where you can't have a sales team and the other one where you can't have any marketing, I would choose to not have a sales team if that was the if that was the if that was the, if that was the choice. Yeah, valid point. And and if if you did, there there's probably changes that need to happen to the product to facilitate that to happen. Because yeah. you know, in the age of online sales, everyone thinks, Oh, it's I hate man I was talking to a mate the other day and he said, I've got He's got a team of 10 salespeople and he's like, I hate it. I hate hiring salespeople. I hate dealing with them. They're just money hungry and it's a big pain in the butt. And he said, that's it. I'm just going to set up a checkout page on a Shopify store and they're all going to buy this service online. Now, this service is averaging 10 grand a pop. Now, the what he doesn't realize and what I tried to explain to him is that if you are eliminating your sales team and moving to an online sales platform and you get everything's going to be bought online what that doesn't actually make the thing any easier to sell you're just shifting the work from sales into the marketing team so now you need to get really good at marketing if you were before okay at it now you need to be really good at marketing to facilitate that through uh, that's assuming you're not going to change anything with the product the offer the pricing and all of that sort yeah. of stuff yeah, yeah, super, super interesting. Yeah, I think, and I think that's maybe one of the things that people don't really consider is that like every action has a has a has an opposite reaction, and it's like, okay, cool, yeah, you might say, well, we're just going to shift to a full, fully marketing driven um, type approach, but you're right, you are shifting the the responsibility of how that happens into a different way, and likely are going to impact conversions and stuff as well. A hundred percent. Yeah, I say that in a different way. I say every problem that you solve creates another problem. Yeah, totally. What are the what? As business owners are thinking about growth, right? Because a lot of a lot of people, and you've probably got better kind of stats on this than I do, but like, you know, most business owners never pass the one million dollar revenue mark, and then a, a, only a yep. fraction of them gets ten million, and then, you know, continues like to have, you know, exponentially lo- lower, smaller fractions of people who get beyond that kind of level of success. But in your kind of in your kind of perspective, like, what are the different levels of scale? Like, where are the kind of where are the kind of step marks of, of scale and growth that people can be thinking about so that they can, as they can start to then visualize the journey and how to get ahead? Yeah, sure. So normally, if you look at a revenue perspective, normally it's 500K, so zero to 500K. And at that stage, you're still trying to figure stuff out. You're probably doing 
the majority of the work. You got to maybe one person or possibly two people to help you. But normally, yeah, the one of the sort of landing points is zero to 500k. Once you're at 500k, you sort of figured stuff out and you're thinking, okay, well, how do I push further through to that? Next sort of level is a million bucks a year in revenue. Then you've got another one at uh, half a million and then 10 million and then normally 50 million. Now, every time that you try and grow from those different levels, so say one to five million, you've got a whole bunch of different growing pains that come up. So that could be, say, as you're going from one to five, the marketing channels that you had before may either be tapped out, not cost effective anymore, or you've got one gun salesperson who can do a million dollars a year in sales for you, but can't actually physically have enough hours in the day to sell 5 million. Well, now you've got to go and hire two or three or 10 more people to be able to do that and replicate those results. So normally what I find is, is that as people are starting out and that sort of zero to a million, they've got to focus on sales and marketing first. It's no good about getting them to be recruiting people and leadership and management. That's all great, but that's for later. Once they start to hit one to five million, the sales and marketing functions that they've got are starting to hit their stride. Now that person needs to become better at hiring and leadership and delegating out because that's another thing that us business owners are really bad at. And then once you get really good at that, then you've got that sort of five to 10 million mark. That's when you've got to get good at delegating projects, strategy, implementation. Now, depending where you are at with one product, one market, so on and so forth, you may need to then, one of the projects might be new product or new market. And the business owner, I find, is probably the best person to to actually do that and to iterate that stuff and come up with those ideas. Because what I've found is that the majority of the team, no matter how amazing they are, they're really good at running business as usual, but can't can't look over the the mountain to see what could potentially be on the other side. Now, once you hit 10, then, um, and you're doing projects, then potentially look at other opportunities like M&A and, you know, go through acquisitions and that sort of thing to get you up to 50 mil and above. Do you think that's a natural progression? Like once you cross the sort of $10 million mark, that's when it's time to start thinking about M&A as a strategy? I think... I think that M&A is, all, and is always a good idea for the right business. So I was speaking to someone who's in manufacturing probably two or three years ago, and they're doing $3 million in revenue, but they've actually tapped out their marketplace. They can't go anymore doing manufacturing in Australia. And so there's another product that they liked, but they didn't want to build it from scratch. So they went and acquired that business for, you know, half a million bucks. That, that was a really good strategy for them. I think from a revenue perspective, especially like if you look at the Australian market or even the, just the international market, most people and most businesses should be able to get to $10 million in revenue without having to do much acquisition. Yeah. They should be able to do that. And then it's now that you've got a good team because acquisition doesn't solve every problem. Now you've got to incorporate this other business or this other product into your business Well, who's going to do that if you're only at a million dollars in revenue and you've got you and two other helpers how are you actually going to go and do that without burning out yeah but also like one of the challenges in thinking about that is like to a certain degree you need to have enough surplus in your team to be able to handle those kind of change initiatives and change kind of 
But then at the same time, what business that is growing actually has surplus capacity in their team? You know, that becomes, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like, how do you, it's like, okay, cool idea. So when, when the team have enough bandwidth, we're going to start thinking about buying businesses and integrating them. But when is, when is that going to happen? Right? Because I don't, (laughs) how do you thread that needle? Well, the work expense to fill the available time, right? So, and my dad's got a saying, he says, um, if I ever say to him, I've got too much on my plate, he says, just chew faster. But realistically, what you've got to do when it comes to acquisition strategies, new products, new projects, new everything, is actually just spend some time. And rather than knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, I've got an idea, let's start on it straight away, start to think about how does this form part of the next 12 months, two years, five years, and is that actually worth doing? Because what what I've seen is that because as business owners, we have complete and utter power inside of our business. If we have an idea on the weekend and we want to start implementing it and pull the whole team in a different direction, then we can do that. That in itself is a problem because then they get um, whiplash from constantly going from one thing to the next. So in terms of that, what I normally find is to go and execute acquisitions and all that sort of stuff and make time for it is you've got to reprioritize and deprioritize other stuff. So if the acquisition is that important and there's going to be a whole bunch of time and effort and energy spent on that, then you've got to drop something else to be able to do it. Or you need to specifically invest in such a way that that will create that capability because you've kind of got two ways to create the bandwidth in the team for that reality to happen. Either, let's say you've got, whatever, say you've got, let's say you've got 50 team members and they've all got 100 units of time. So therefore, in order to make the space, you need to drop some projects in order to make the space for another. Or yep. you need to have um, su- sufficient liquidity, both from a like a attention and capital perspective to say, okay, so in order to execute on this new strategy, idea, project, or whatever it is, we in fact may need to build a a specialist team for that or expand the team to be able to create that space. The catch there is that's a pure play investment, right? Because you would literally be expanding the team to create capability to go do something else. So it'll be a cost, not a profit, right? And so understanding that like how to think about what the payback period is for those kind of things also has to play into the the composition of, you know, is this even a good idea? Because just had the benefit of being in the US and going to a few bunch of masterminds and interacting with loads of business owners and everyone's got the same thing, entrepreneurial ADHD. They're like, great idea, great idea, great idea. And everyone's (laughs) an optimist, right? Everyone's an optimist. They can see if I do this, oh, it's gonna gonna work and we're gonna make a ton of money. So we should do that. It's like, yes, yes, yes. But what's the payback period? And what is the investment up front? And that's and and, that's, and also what what are the other what are the other alternatives? Because time is the scarcest resource. Yeah. So, you know, let's just say you run through and that'd be a great approach to that. Set up a separate team. You've got these people who are additional resources, right? Let's just say you're gonna put five people on that, you pay them a hundred grand a year, right? That's half a million bucks. You've got to yeah, as you said, you've got to figure out the payback period. But if you put that half a million dollars into something else that's not acquisitions, are you going to get a better return on your investment? Return on investment also comes from like uh, an enjoyment perspective too, though, Gav, right? Because oh, yeah. Hell it's yeah. not all dollars and cents. 
maybe, just maybe, it'd be really fun to go and buy a bunch of companies, even if the return is... <laughs> oh, look, if we're Sounds talking fun. about fun, and look, let's just throw around a half a million dollar number. If you're talking about fun, going and buying a Ferrari and driving that around and, you know, fanging that for a while, it'd probably be fun as well. So... Yeah, but no, but... Uh, yeah, but, right? If I, I get what you're saying, between spending half a million dollars on a Ferrari or... Half a million dollars on a on a programmatic M and A strategy. I'd I know exactly which one would fulfil me more, and it certainly wouldn't be driving the Ferrari around. So yeah, um, of course. But you do have to think about that, and I think it's really important that you actually at least kind of like because sometimes we can go in these pursuits and we can rationalise them as being really astute business decisions, but in fact they're really astute um, joy decisions. We're like, ooh, this sounds cool, and I like the sound of that kind of thing, and that can kind of override some of the kind of factual numerical return kind of things and you can definitely get optimized but it's it's okay as long as you're kind of understanding that consciously before you get into it i think yeah and look so you know and as as business owners we love getting excited about that stuff but the excitement sometimes wanes and so you know one thing that i would suggest that everyone does and i'm trying to practice it as best as possible is let's not make long-term decisions in a short-term decision time frame if we're going to pivot the whole business or we're going to go and acquire businesses for millions of bucks or even hundreds of thousands of dollars let's not make that decision on a weekend over a couple of drinks you know let's actually yeah. start thinking about this is a considerable thing and then when you put time and distance in between that once the shine wears off then the logical brain starts coming into saying mm, this is a good idea or it's not a or it's not a good idea. Yeah, I think as someone who is really deep in this kind of matrix of stuff that we're talking about, I think there's a couple of things. Because I've actually had people ask me about how I tackle this. You know that I've got a million ideas a minute, and it's yeah. like, well, and it can be really disruptive. So there's a couple of things that I've found to be particularly beneficial, depending on the size and the scale. I'm the kind of person if it's if it's small and it's something we can do quickly, then just do it. Just do it and test. Yeah, it. of course. Like, just get it done. If it's a big thing, like should we change our business model? or like some fundamental shift to the business, even if it is a really good idea, usually I spend the time to try and work out the idea and then I kind of put it down because I'm like, oh, this is a big thing and that's going to be really hard to do. And then I'll put it down and I'll come back to it in a few months later and I'll go, is this still a good idea? And I'll wrestle with it and see if I can still make sense of it makes sense. And then I'll usually put it down again. And it, if it kind of like, if it keeps passing the sniff test, then it becomes like, huh, we should probably do something about this. The other filter though, and so he's putting that kind of time between the consideration uh, and the action. You've got to thresh it out first. You can't just like, I'll put the idea on the shelf. It's like, get the idea, no, okay, no, no. Really, work out, really work out whether or not this is going to work or not. And then even if it is going to work, it doesn't mean go do it. If it is going to work, then you've got to think about when is it going to work. The other thing as well, and this kind of comes back to like a leadership culture um, kind of perspective, you need to surround yourself with people who are prepared to tell you no as well. You, know, oh, you need sure. to surround yourself. You need to have, if, if everyone in your organization just says, yeah, oh, you, you want to do that? Let's go do that. I mean, you're screwed because you've got no one to filter. Like you've got no one to push back. And, but if you've got people on your team who will, who respect you enough to understand that you've got great ideas and will, will follow when required, but are also confident and astute enough to turn around and say, Mm-mm. no, we're already doing all of this other stuff and you need to back off, cool it. Like that's when you've got a great team as well. And like, you've got to manufacture that in the team. That doesn't happen by accident. My perspective is you need to manufacture breaks. You need to manufacture the capability for other people to put the brakes on. And then you need to respect it when that happens, you know? 
But man, I tell you what, I still it's it's a blow when they blow that wind out of the sails, like because you think that this is the single biggest and best idea in the entire world, and then for somebody else to say to you, "But what about this? Oh, that sounds like this other. Th- How's that different to this product?" Like yeah. you need that hundred percent. You need it, but you also need to be ready to hear the no as well. I love it. I did. I love it. I love it because it happens. It happens to me all the time. I'd be like, "Ah, oh, big idea," and then you know, like the majority of the time, the team's all bored, and then some of the time they're like, "No, nah, no." That's a bad idea, or it might be a good idea, but we're not going to do it. And here's why. And it's, yeah. dude, I, I love it. I'm like, man, that's yeah. so good because you get so much good feedback. You get to learn from it and you really get to challenge your idea. And having someone to critically test your idea gives you the opportunity to really tease out, like that, get out of your own head as well. So, yeah, um, for sure. I want to ask a couple more questions. I'm mindful of time, yeah, but there's sure. a few more questions I want to dig into. First, before we deviate off this topic, when should business owners think about, start, start to think about taking money off the table? Oh, okay. The main thing is it depends about the, the personal goals that the individual has. There's, you can do it too early and you can do it too late. So if you do it too early, that's when I think it comes down to what are you going to do with the money that you take off the table, right? I'm all for, I'm very, very for that the business's purpose has two real purpose. One, can it make some sort of difference to the customers or clients' lives by solving a problem? But two, its main business should be to to reward the owners and the shareholders for making and taking the risk. Take as much money off the table as often as you can, provided that that's going to go somewhere that will give you as much enjoyment or returns compared to reinvesting it back into the business. Now, there's there's a really easy way to sort of get the best of both worlds, and that is if you are focusing on cash profit as your measure of growth rather than how many people that you have or what your revenue is growing by. If you are focusing on cash profit as your measure of growth and your cash profit's increasing, you don't have to take all of it off the table. Just take a percentage of it off the table. Maybe you leave 90% in to reinvest back in the business and you take 10% out so that you've got some stability there if the business goes to shit. Because in my line of work, I've seen where businesses, owners take the risk and it pays off I've also seen when it doesn't pay off and they've got nothing because their entire wealth is tied up in the business. So not only do they have no wealth left, they've got no income because that was the only source of income. So I think from a protection standpoint, from a sanity standpoint, you need to throttle those percentages. In the earlier stages, it might only be 10% of the profit if you want to continue to grow it. Once you're larger, you need to be taking you know, the lion's share of that off the table and leaving enough working capital in there to grow the business. Interesting. So thinking about taking money out of the business and then like, what do you do with it? And I suggest if you're listening to this, probably don't piss it up the wall or go and buy dumb stuff no. like fancy cars and stuff until you've until you've kind of built wealth outside of business. I kind of want to ask you a little bit about that. And you don't need to go um, too deep into your own kind of like personal wealth yeah, creation yeah. stuff. But I'm interested, I'm interested to know, Outside of business, like what have you looked at? You know, outside of your businesses that you run, how have you thought about creating wealth? Have you been investing in other businesses? Has real estate played a role in your kind of like outside of business wealth kind of kind of stream? Do you want to talk to that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the majority of my wealth is tied up in real estate and share market investments. So that's where the majority of it goes. And I'm the approach that I take is 
a long-term view to it. I'm playing the long game. I'm I'm still young in the scheme of things. I'm not looking to retire because I would go insane if I did. And so I'm looking at a 20, 30-year horizon. So I can, I know that I can endure any ups, downs or left and rights. The share market, tanks, whatever, that's totally fine. I'm looking at a longer-term view of that. So the majority of the way that I approach it is how can I get as much value out of the businesses that I've got? How can then I flush that through some other investment vehicle? And rather than spending it on junk, let's use the returns of those investments to then kick back to say, okay, well, now what do I do with it? Because I've earned this income, not necessarily passively, but I've earned this income without having to work for it. Right. So that's normally yeah, the, you- that's, that's the approach that I take with it. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good approach and there's a lot of lessons in that because I think a lot of people start making money in their business and then they think, wow, I'm going to go and buy fancier clothes and get a fancier car and do all of this kind of stuff, which is fine. And again, it's all good. But if you can then take the money out of your business and then put that into an investment strategy and then the returns from that investment strategy can then fund the lifestyle, that kind of puts that little piece in the middle where you're you're kind of like doubling your return. Like you've got the return out of your business, exactly. you're turning that into more returns and then you're getting off the back. That's when you can start to spend however you however you like, which is a, a really good approach. It's kind of like build business, buy investments, you know, spend how you like. It's kind of general. Exactly, general exactly. And and it's, you know, I see it all the time. I used, to, I used to do some consulting to business in the construction industry and the cash flow is, you know, ebbs and flows with market and... um and progress payments and all of that sort of stuff. So one day, somebody who owns a construction business can be rich. The next day, once they pay all of their bills, they can be poor. The very first thing that I normally see in construction businesses is once they get some money in and they sell some houses, the first thing they do is go and buy $100,000, utes. Now, in my opinion, that's a depreciating asset and that's a stupid way to approach it because if you compare that to even just a really shitty investment and what return you can get on that. And you fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, by far any investment that you can have is going to be better than putting money into a 100K ute. So, and it's hard It's hard because I find that we've been brought up to be consumers and the all of the marketers in the world, their job is to convince us to spend money on things that we don't really need. And so we, I have, you have to fight that urge to be able to do it with a logical, rational mindset that in the future, you're going to be better off because of the decisions that you made today. Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay. Got one final question before we wrap it up. I know we're running a little over time, but what is one contrarian belief that you hold to be true? I love doing what everyone else isn't doing and trying to find the opportunities in it. So let's take interest rates at the moment. This is going to date the podcast. I won't say the actual amount because it's going to change probably next week. But let's just say interest rates are rising and you look at the property market and I'm not a property expert at all. Like, let's leave that to you. But if interest rates are rising, people are feeling the crunch and they're selling their homes. There's not a stack of people that are buying properties in that market. I look at it to say, well, what where's the opportunity here and how can I turn that into an opportunity? So, I suppose my belief is do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. Because I have a long-term view, it'll end up paying off in the longer term and time will fix my mistakes. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think there's a lot of lessons to be taken out of that because, yeah, in my in, in my experience, those who can um, act in a way that is contrarian to the the mass populace, it tend to be the ones who find the edge and get their best returns. That doesn't mean if everyone is not jumping off a cliff that you go jump off a cliff <laughs> just because it's <laughs> what they're not doing. No, no, <laughs> you, certainly you know, not. You, <laughs> but but like you know. It, from a, from a like mass consumer sentiment perspective, it definitely does hold true. It's kind of like, you know, this is not investing advice or whatever, but it's kind of like when you see the stock market crash and everyone's saying, ah, oh, it's a bad time to get in. Usually, statistically speaking, it's a great time to buy, but it takes a certain yeah. emotional fortitude to actually do that. Great in the real estate market, terrible in the share market. In the share market, all of the advice that I give to people, when I'm participating in the share market, I am exactly one of them. I get emotionally exuberant and depressed and I'm like, I'm reactionary and and, and so- I realize that it's not a um, it's not a game that I should I should play because I lack the emotional fortitude to be contrarian in that specific environment. When it comes to real estate, I'm like probably as contrarian as it gets, and it tends to pay massive dividends <laughs> for all of our investors. <laughs> so I th- I think there's a real value in, in what you said. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I think if you can build up that resilience, um, one of my mentors said to me, if you're going to go through turbulence, you're better off being in an A380 than in a Cessna. And so the bigger the war chest that you can build up, the bigger the wealth that you can grow, you can go through those peaks and troughs and then your resilience to that then becomes greater. I love that analogy and it's actually funny because I had my first ride in a private jet recently and I thought this is pretty cool. So then I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and buy a private jet. Now, I can't buy one of those big private jets that the <laughs> kind of the, but you can get little ones. You can get all these tiny little ones. Yeah, these yeah. little like six seaters. Yeah. I was like yeah, maybe we could just, they're still expensive, still can't afford one, but more affordable, more closer. Let's just put it, say they're closer than say a G650 or something. But then I was imagining in one of these like little six-seater kind of like mini jets or whatever, trying to cross the Pacific. And I was thinking, man, that'd be like, that'd be terrifying because I just flew back from the US in an A380 and it was like, there was a lot of turbulence and it was pretty wild. And I was like, just thinking, imagine if I was in one of those tiny little, exactly. tiny little six-seaters, you'd be, oh man, it'd be insane. Certainly to get the heart rate up a little bit anyway. So yeah, cool. Awesome, Gav. Really appreciate your time. A lot of really good insights on this episode. Anything else you want to share or any, um, any thoughts? No, I, th- I just think, you know, one of the, one of the things that my approaches in life and in business is that Business is always tough and it's always going to be hard and every business is broken. Every single business is broken to some certain extent. And in this day and age, we're really big at comparing ourselves to others and just know that whatever you're looking at is a highlight reel and really behind the scenes, everything's everything's broken. So my approach is that business is tough. It's always going to be tough. There's no point complaining about it. Just keep pushing on, and the only time that you fail is when you give up. So yeah. that's my uh, that's my TED talk. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I love it. On that note, we'll leave it there. Gav, thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. See you guys. 